you're listening to the Tongue Tie Experts Podcast, a weekly program providing information and support for those families impacted by tongue and lip tie and the professionals caring for them. I'm Lisa Palladino, a midwife and a lactation consultant with over 30 years of experience. If you are a parent looking for answers or a professional who is curious to learn more than what you learned in school on this topic, welcome. This podcast is for you. A gentle disclaimer, please do not consider anything discussed on this podcast by myself or any guest of the podcast to be medical advice. The information is provided for educational purposes only and does not take the place of your own medical or lactation provider. Thank you. Welcome back, everyone, to the Tongue Tie Experts podcast. I am so excited tonight to have Elizabeth Morell with me. Elizabeth is a physical therapist, and she takes care of tongue-tie babies every day. And um, welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for having me. And I would love it if you would tell our listeners a little bit about you Um where you where you practice, what your practice is like, and what brings you to care of tongue-tied babies. Okay, so um, I will make this as short as I possibly can because it's a very long story, but let's say I have taken care of newborn babies um, since I began, and I got my license in 2008. And I knew that I was going to be taking care of babies as I did clinical in the NICU, and that was my jam. And so... When I was taking care of young babies, I would work on mostly external stuff, but a lot of um, difficulty birthing, herbs palsy, torticollis, vacuum delivery, forceps delivery, um, and the asymmetries that were caused by that never worked in the mouth. Then I had my own child. My first child was born in 2015, and she, from the moment she came out, um, I knew something was going on and I knew of tongue ties and I knew to check for tongue ties and I knew the difficulties that could happen. However, I had never treated one because uh, physical therapists weren't really in that space at that time. And so it took me four lactation consultants. However, um, finally, <laughs> uh, she was diagnosed Um through observation versus medical diagnosis. Obviously that has to be done by a medical doctor. And I was sent to a doctor, lovely, lovely man, Dr. Scott Siegel, who immediately diagnosed her with a stage four lip tie and a stage four tongue tie. And he completed a release on both. So this was 2015. So that was before we may not have been thinking about a lot of pre-care and after, at that point, okay. Right? So the funny part about this is, um, I said to him, so where's the physical therapy? And he said, Beth, there's no physical therapy. I was said, this is ridiculous. How are we going to cut fascia and now free a muscle and not have someone to retrain it, you know, on the spot. And at that time, there really wasn't anybody in, in our area, in the Northeast, I practice in New Jersey. Um, and, he said, you can go to craniosacral therapy. It will help 
release attention and help the nervous system. I said, great. I went and it really did. It helped release tension, help the nervous system. I was very uh, aware of craniosacral therapy, had taken some preliminary uh, work before that, and it helped her sleep a lot. However, it didn't retrain the muscles. And then I said, okay, what can I do? What else can I do? And my lactation consultant said, you can go to chiropractor. I said, great. Also a fan of chiropractics. PT and Cairo don't always get along. I personally work very well in conjunction with Cairo. And so I said, great. I went again. It took me a little while to find the right fit of chiropractor for my child, but also helped, but it wasn't retraining the tongue. And then it just so happened that a wonderful lactation consultant named Jennifer Tao had her first class that was the, the body worker meets the IBCLC which is now the masterclass, but at that time was for us. And that kind of brought together the IBSCLC lactation portion with the, with the motor portion of the intraoral work. And it just so happened. It was right after she was born and I attended and it was our first class in the Northeast and it was wonderful. And I, and for me, it made complete sense because I had already done feeding in the NICU. I was already working on all the muscles that contribute to asymmetries and torticollis and movement of the jaw and movement of the bones. And so it was a natural fit. And then basically from there, I made it my life goal of, I don't want people to be like me. You know, I had blister bleeding scab nipples for a month because I kept getting pushed off that my baby was gaining weight. And I think that that's a huge, um, red flag that we see in our practices every day, just because your baby is gaining weight doesn't mean that they're happy, um, satisfied at the breast, that they're not exhibiting other signs of tension and nervous system difficulties. And so I, you know, I just kind of leaned into the process and I've been here focusing on specifically oral motor dysfunction ever since. So thank you for that. And I want to do a little bit of backup because you mentioned the word fascia. And not everybody listening may understand or know what that means. And I think that's a really important concept to understand. So do you want to just talk a little bit about what you mean by fascia? So fascia are, is connective tissue. They're the spider webs that go on top of muscles, tendons, ligaments, nerves. They're a sheath that compartmentalize each piece from each other within the body. So everything can slip and slide with ease and things don't get stuck onto each other. But fascia when it's tight or twisted, will strangle the muscles. And so if you go and you access a muscle, like you go and you get a massage and that will bring blood flow to your muscle, but the fascia is still strangling the muscle, you won't actually see the relief that you want because the fascia hasn't been addressed in and of itself. And so that is typically addressed with techniques called myofascia release or, um, well, craniosacral therapy, which is what I use as my treatment technique. Um, but there's also craniofacial techniques. There's a lot of fascial techniques, but basically we hone in on treating not just the skeletal structures, the muscles, but the fascia itself. And the tongue frenulum itself is mostly fascia. And this is why babies and humans get phrenectomies because there is so little blood flow within the fascia because it's just a piece of connective tissue that we can't stretch it. So another misnomer that we hear all the time is, well, you know, it'll stretch out by itself. That's hundred percent untrue because it doesn't have right. enough blood flow to it. But it's important to note that that deep line of connective tissue is very interconnected. It's tongue, neck, diaphragm, 
hips and pelvic floor, inner thighs, calves, feet. That's all one piece. So I say it's like a stocking. You twist the stocking at the top or a pantyhose, it's going to twist the whole way down. And so you're going to see the asymmetries and tension patterns throughout the body and not just in the head and face. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like to say if there's tightness anywhere, there's tightness everywhere because you can see the pulling and the, the shifting. And the therapies that you're talking about, cranial sacral, myofascial release, those are all very gentle therapies, correct? I mean, I don't want anybody to think it, you know, they can all sound a little scary with all these big names, but I I, I think it's um important for us to help parents to understand that these aren't uh aggressive treatments. They're very gentle. Right. So craniosacral in and of itself gets a bad name because if you Google that, you know, you might see, oh, you know, child died of craniosacral therapy, but what the person was doing was not craniosacral therapy because craniosacral therapy is the most gentle form of treatment that you can perform on somebody. You are accessing the ebb and flow of basically the cerebral spinal fluid, which is the craniosacral system. And you feel that flow right below the skin. And so your touch is so extremely gentle because if you even put the weight of your hand on them, you're going to go through that. You're going to hit right the muscle. And now you're not doing craniosacral at all. So it's extremely, extremely gentle. And basically you're trying to make the fluid flow between the fascia to unwind those tension patterns in the most gentle form. Myofascial release is a little bit different because you're accessing fascia and muscle together. So those are more of stretch massage type techniques, but still on babies, you're using, you know, pinkies and extremely gentle um, treatment techniques, more of a stretch. And, you know, what I do on my own clients is say, you know what, here's a technique that you can do at home. I'll show them on their body, in their mouth. And so that they can go home and, and repeat it without feeling like I have no idea what she just did to the baby. That's great. So they feel what it's supposed to feel like before Mm -hmm. they're trained to use it. So I think that's, that's vital. And, you know, I've had craniosacral therapy and it, to me, it's something that we should all be able to get periodically because it feels so good. And it does, it does, you know, for a grown up to me, it makes major shifts in the body that I could feel. Well, what's happening is that memories are stored in fascia. Mm -hmm. And so when you realign and release the fascia, you're also releasing the memory with it. And sometimes that is the difference of whether or not your quote unquote treatment sticks or doesn't stick. If you release the memory, you can literally unwind the tension pattern that somebody has been holding on their whole life, especially if they're an adult, you know, there's our teachers tell us stories like, Hey, I was treating this child and, uh, you know, all of a sudden they were telling me that when they were five, their brother pulled them down the hallway and that, who, that was the pull on the leg. And they just, they just talk, they just talk through it. And it sounds insane that someone could bring that up and say it, but it's true. Even mm-hmm. when I was working on a, on a mother, I was supposed to be working on the 12 year old, but parents and children are very interconnected. I was working on the mother and was on the left side of her uterus. And I said, Hey, you have a tension pattern here. Um, is there anything that comes to mind? And she broke down hysterically and said, you know, I had a loss and I never talked about it. And I, I basically could never get over it, but it haunts me every single day. And the boy, her child, who was 12, who was having a lot of emotional issues in school, completely unwound by himself. And the shift of him listening to it and her telling me the story 
and her, you know, acknowledging that like, listen, okay, I will talk through it. I will get some therapy for it, her shift in her own body. But the amazing thing was the boy, that 12 year old boy was completely different person after it. That's amazing. That's Mm -hmm. so amazing because we hold our emotions in our body for sure. But we're digressing from tongue tie. That's okay. So, so um, Elizabeth, you have an amazing Instagram presence and you know, you're, you're influencing in a very good way because not everything on Instagram is uh, information that makes us proud as professionals, but you're, you've got a great, great uh, Instagram account. And I learned from your Instagram account and I was looking at certain things and, and a couple of my favorites that you have, I'll, I'll just bring it up and we'll chat a little bit about the topic of colic. And I say this all the time, colic is not a diagnosis. And, um, you have a post about that that has done well. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? I know it doesn't seem like it's related to tongue tie, but it is because as we're talking about, everything is connected. So if a baby's crying all the time, seemingly from no reason, the reason is not because they have colic. There's something else going on, correct? Right. And and colic is not a diagnosis is basically the little movers tagline because I think every baby who comes into my office has some sort of brush past, if not an actual quote unquote clinical diagnosis of colic. Um, And colic was a word, I think, formulated in the late seventies, early eighties, that basically um, encompassed a baby who cried a lot. And they even made some, you know, metrics around it. It's more than six hours a day and more than six weeks in a row or something crazy. And therefore you had a diagnosis of colic. But, um, you know, what I have found and what I I believe to be true is that colic is the inability to look deeper because if a baby is crying and if a baby is upset, there's always going to be a reason why always. Now, is this reason because they have gut health issues and their belly is really sensitive. I either reacting to something that the mother is eating. And so is that a cow's milk protein intolerance or, you know, is this a, a dairy gluten issue or are they, there's just a weak gut because the mom had a weak gut and they were born via cesarean section, whatever it is. Um, you know, your belly hurts, right? I want to cry when my belly hurts too. So I don't disagree. Um, your belly can hurt and you can cry from a ton of gas going into your body, Mm. which is called aerophagia Mm. and aerophagia directly relates to tongue ties because almost every baby who has a tethering of the lingual and labial frenulum is allowing air into their belly through the latch. And you get now layers, milk, air, milk, air, milk, air, and that those layers are going to evolve up and they're either going to come up as silent reflex, which just sits there and burns, or they're going to come up as spit up. Spit up isn't pleasant for anyone. um, Even though it may, you may appear to be relieved or your baby may appear to be relieved, which then you're coined the happy spitter. But um, aerophagia is the number one reason why babies have reflux and GERD and colic are also, you know, intertwined in diagnosis. I mean, babies don't often have true GERD. They either are spitting up or have reflux because 
they have this food intolerance or because they have aerophagia or because they have both. And that's what we call, you know, the packaged baby, right? Like this Mm -hmm. is where we get quote unquote colic from. Right. And then in addition, if you have a tongue tie, you know, that frenulum is twisting that fascia that we were talking about down your body, causing a whole tension pattern. And nobody wants to be tense. It can be as simple as you waking up, um, saying I slept the wrong way and you have a stiff neck. This is that times 10,000 on a baby because they don't even know how to react to the tension that they're feeling. So, you know, it can be one, it can be two, it can be all, it can be more of those things. And that's how we end up with the, the colicky baby. But every day babies are just brushed off as having yes. it's it's a pet peeve of mine as well um to just say well they just cry because they they're they're colic um you know getting back to the orophagia the aerophagia i also see that like the way i like to think about it, and i explain to my own patients is if air is going in it's got to go somewhere so sometimes it's going to come up Sometimes it, it'll just come up in that silent reflux. Sometimes it will be spit up and other times it'll work its way down mm-hmm. and cause gas in the lower digestive system or explosive bowel movements, mm-hmm. you know, and noisy, like, you know, not to get a little bit, you know, disgusting or whatever, but a newborn should not, their bowel movement should not sound like a grown up man's bowel. Well, movement. that's a question that I have on my intake form. Right. You, you hear it. <laughs> Can right. you hear it right. when your child has a bowel movement? Right. Right. If you do hear it across the room and parents are proud, like, oh yeah. 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 No, I do. And I'm like, yeah. okay, well, there's a ton of air clearly coming out. Yes. You know, and yes. the baby and, laying yeah. down and constantly kicking their legs up and slamming them down all night long. That's that lower digestive. Right. You know, yeah. And the other thing that I see with colic or or the diagnosis, or you know, families will come in and say they're gassy all the time. To me, that could be a red flag for hunger because sometimes a very newborn baby will cry because they're hungry and people are assuming that they have gas because that's what everybody labels a crying baby is a baby that has gas. So a lot of times it's a low milk supply issue too. That could be And don't forget every time you cry. You create more gas. Exactly, exactly. So it's a cycle. So that's a great. I'm I'm glad that you're helping to um, bring awareness to that topic, and um, we get the message out that if your baby is diagnosed with colic, you want to look a little deeper than that, literally. <laughs> okay. And then lately, and this is this is another thing that comes up for me a lot. I see a lot of kids, a lot of babies at different ages that still have their startle reflex, that it's not integrated. And now as a lactation consultant, I don't really, you know, we, we learn about reflexes, but I don't know more than what I learned because I'm also a midwife about the different reflexes and what age they're supposed to integrate. And I believe the startle should be integrated around four months. Correct. The latest, right. Got it. And, but I've, I, I was wondering if you could bring up a little bit about why, letting that baby have some startle reflex, not keeping them swaddled all the time, not keeping them restrained all the time and letting that reflex integrate and how that works. Because I've seen babies that are swaddled almost continuously or at least 12 hours a night who maintain their reflexes and aren't doing well in other ways. So if you want to talk a little bit about that. 
So this is, you know, again, very intertwined with babies who have tongue ties or like I said before, that packaged baby who might have those multiple things going on. Um, and it is interesting because one can kind of beget the other. So your moral reflex is there for a reason, right? It is to startle you awake in order to keep you alive in those early days. It is also to create your body. It's also, it helps to create body awareness. It helps to create that auditory stimulation, that uh, vestibular sensitivity, um, the tactile sensitivity. It is there to help you develop into the person that you are, but it does need to integrate around four months so that you are not being bothered by everything that it had been trying to create. And the way that you integrate reflexes and all reflexes is through movement. It's through movement through that reflex, right? And so in startle, that is, you know, chin to chest, arms in tight, knees up in that little ball, using those abs, and then the exact opposite, head back, arms open, legs in extension, and undoing that. So that repetitive movement that happens just from a baby being a baby, uh, rolling around, you know, getting on their tummy, getting on their back, going on their side, that those repetitive movements are what helps integrate that. However, if you are swaddled, all the time, you aren't moving through those reflex patterns Mm -hmm. and you work the reflex out, like I said, through the pattern. And so if you're swaddled, you don't have the opportunity to work through those reflexes. Now, how this integrates with the babies that we see in our um, clinic is that the babies that we treat are often already in a very teetering state of fight or flight become a lot of times because you know, one of the reasons is that the vagus nerve isn't being stimulated enough. And that nerve does take, take you out of fight or flight. It makes you that cool, calm and collected where, you know, stimulating parasympathetic nervous system here. And those babies teeter on that because they may be hungry. They might be gassy and they're not getting any direct contact to that vagus nerve. So they're already in that state of flight, fight or flight. Now, you as the parent are like, okay, I'm going to do anything that I can to kind of calm them down and instinctually swaddling them might calm them down. So you think that you're doing the right and appropriate thing. So it it can be very dicey here where you actually think that you're doing the right thing by keeping your baby calm. And sometimes that swaddle or holding hands is organizing to the baby. When your baby's disorganized because they're teetering on a state of fight or flight, they can't pull their suck, swallow, breathe pattern together in order to feed appropriately. So sometimes the recommendation is like, oh, hey, swaddle your baby and see if that helps organize the baby enough to feed. But again, now we're, you know, we're not working through those patterns. So it gets very push-pull with how much do you do, how much don't you do. But adding swaddles and back to sleep on top of those other things that are going on, their nervous system stuck in fight or flight or um, in being disorganized while feeding, then inhibited even more. And it just gets very sticky going back and forth. So I think we already treat these babies who have nervous system issues. And if we don't then help them through it, i.e. you bring them through those, you know, those reflex patterns to help them integrate them themselves, that leads to the child who is on edge. So say the moral reflex specifically, that child is going to be very sensitive to light, something flashing before their eyes, a kid running in front of them, be sensitive to noise. You know, you drop a book off your desk by accident, that kid is completely distracted. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they're distracted 
they're, everyone's supposed to be doing writing time in school, but something happens, they can't maintain their attention. And, mm-hmm. you know, someone bumps into them in the hallway, they perceive that as a direct threat when this person just accidentally bumped into them because they don't know how to perceive that light touch. Um, and, uh, you know, even you as a parent raising your voice, right? You're like, hey, honey. And they're like, Blah, what? You know, those are examples of non-integrated moral reflex and they will cause dysfunction in your child's life without being a baby. Right. Of course. Yes. Seven, eight months. It can, they inhibit movement patterns and you can't kind of get organized to feed because you're still startling yourself awake. And when you're startling yourself awake, then you don't have good sleep and, you know, you lead to this cycle, but three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 year olds are having severe difficulties in school, all because going back to that, you know, four month old reflex pattern. Right. I love the way you're, you're showing the connection because I'm someone that only works with babies, right? So I don't see what happens mm-hmm. afterwards, but I have a strong intuition that things aren't right and things aren't going to proceed as they should, you know, with the reflexes. Then we, we could go down the rabbit hole of airway and <laughs> we'll save that for another night because we don't want to be on forever and ever and ever. Um, but um, yeah, so that that's great. I, I think that... You know, if you're for the parents who are listening, we're not saying you should never swaddle, but I don't believe a baby should be kept in a swaddle to sleep for the whole night because there's a few reasons, Um, but mainly because you're not going to get their feeding cues. So this goes into the whole, should we be sleep training idea? And there are very nice, gentle sleep consultants. That's mm-hmm. not what I'm talking about, but a newborn needs to feed all night and we shouldn't, we shouldn't expect them to be sleeping overnight and swaddling them to keep them asleep is necessarily going to prevent them from getting enough food. And it's going to swaddling them while rocking them in a contraption. That shall right. Well, I don't even want to talk about that contraption because I'll, <laughs> I'll stop breaking out in hives. <laughs> <laughs> Babies should be able to move. Exactly. Babies should be able to move. Um, limiting, you know, we call the, I, you know, we call them keeping babies in buckets, limiting, limiting container syndrome. Yes. So do you want to talk a little bit about container syndrome? Yes. I have one thing to say, because you said the word airway. So it does, they all link together. And I would say being a therapist is with this population is kind of difficult because you have to take into account all the things that I just mentioned about reflex all the things that we're talking about with aerophagia and gut health and figure out that. And then there's airway dysfunction and airway dysfunction is caused by a lot of these issues and tone and um, you know, what's genetic versus what is epigenetics and versus what is happening in the now. And so it's a lot, right? Like within one treatment session, I might go from craniosacral therapy, working on the fascia and the nervous system to physical therapy, working on strengthening, um, and movement to reflex integration therapy, you know, trying to get them to work through those regular patterns, but specific, you have to just change your mindset. It's the same thing that you're probably already doing, but you're doing it with a specific purpose purpose. And then you have to turn around and make sure that their airway is open and that it's growing appropriately through all the, all the other things. So 
Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a tall order and it's very, it can be very overwhelming for parents when you hear me say all of those things. Like, I'm like, oh man, my job is tough. And they're like, oh man, this is my baby. So right. Hard. Right. Hard. Yeah. And it can be scary because I mean, I know in my case, they're coming to me because they're having problems with breastfeeding. And then I start talking about reflexes and positioning and not keeping them in this and not covering their hands because they need their hands to eat. And, and, and I get like, and then I start telling them about body work and it's like, wait, my baby needs what? And I get, you know, that's why it's important to have people like you providers, like you come on and, and spread the word about the importance of it and the gentleness of it and the um, total care of the full body, which is so important because tongue tie is so much more than that piece of tissue under the tongue or under the lip that needs to be cut. It's not about that. It's all the other things that are connected to it. Why is the friend? And therefore it's not a quick fix, right? It's never the hardest pill to swallow, you know, for a new parent, for a seasoned parent, for myself, you know, like I said, I started that journey with my daughter and she has all of the, she's that alert, high alert nervous system child. And my son is, was also tongue tied and he's the complete opposite. He is the low clinically diagnosed, low tone child, the super healer, the no revision is going to help me child and mm-hmm. both spectrums, you know, I can barely swallow that pill. So right. you, you, everyone's, First question is, well, how long is this going to take? Right. And the answer is, man, I don't know, because we got to work on, you know, you're going to be now tuned into your child's airway basically for the rest of their life, because now, you know, now you are empowered to know. Right. Right. So I forgot what you asked me. I totally forgot what question (laughs) you asked me. Great. That's great, because I probably forgot what I asked you, too. (laughs) We'll start over. We'll start over. Okay. I don't know if you can talk about this quickly. We talked about this a little bit before we started recording. Um, pacifiers. Oh, pacifiers. pacifiers. Okay, I'll give you so, my... So what, yeah, why... What I really want you to address is why don't you recommend extended use of pacifiers to help a baby learn to suck? So here's my two cents about pacifiers. Let's talk about the shape of the pacifier. If you're even going to use one at all, it should be tube shaped. Evans, to the even flow balance makes that tube shape and Dr. Brown's makes that tube shape. That encourages the U-like curl of the tongue around that nipple. And that's why those are the more useful pacifiers if you're even going to venture on to use one. But the reason why I don't promote them for suck training or for therapeutic purpose is because the length of them is only one, the very end of the bone, the long bone of your pinky. And we are encouraging the tongue to move from two knuckles deep in your pinky. And so you want to get the back of the tongue moving. The back of the tongue is the part that usually gets stuck and it scrunches up or it humps up or it pumps. And so we want that part moving and we don't want to stick a pacifier in there. That's going to continue to encourage just the front of the tongue to move instead of the whole tongue. In addition, the way that they're going to use that pacifier is going to be that thrust pattern that is similar to the bottle where at least with your finger, you're going to encourage that wave like motion 
And again, draw that tongue forward so it stays over the gum line and encourage the back of the tongue to curl up and get that U-like shape. And you just don't get that out of a pacifier. So do I tell parents to throw their pacifiers in the garbage? No, because that's not realistic and I know it's not going to happen. But what I say is, you know, put out your fire with your pacifier. If you're in the car or if your fingers are dirty or if you've tried everything with your baby, and you just know you need to stick it in there for a minute while you shush them and rock them, then that's what you do. But as soon as you do, you pull it out, you close the mouth, and you get the tongue back up onto the roof of the mouth. Because the tongue needs to be on the roof of the mouth for every non-eating, crying, talking, waking moment of their lives. And anytime that you're you're suckling on a pacifier, your tongue is on the floor of your mouth. So it's not that pacifiers themselves are the devil, but they're kind of undoing some of the things that you're striving for, right? For the end goals that you have, especially if your baby has just had a phrenectomy because it's pushing the tongue down and therefore your diamond is closing with those suckles. You know, Mm -hmm. with nursing, they have to stretch it and pull it and push the nipple onto the palate and it it gets work. Mm -hmm. But with a pacifier, it just closes up. I agree with that. And I often say the same thing that the pacifiers for emergencies, you're in the car, your, your partner is soothing the baby while you grab something to eat before you sit down to nurse or use the bathroom or, you know, you can't feed the baby and the baby's screaming. I don't like screaming babies. Mm-hmm. And if there's no other way to soothe them. But the other thing that, that I see, and I'm sure you see it as well. And I always ask this question on my intake forms does the baby have trouble taking a pacifier? Mm -hmm. Because most babies with a tongue tie can't even keep a pacifier in their mouth. And those are the babies. And I learned this from my own daughter. I tried every shaped pacifier there was until I found one that she could hold in her mouth. And Mm -hmm. back then I didn't know what I was doing. She's, she just turned 28. So I had no clue that she had a posterior tongue tie and I was actually encouraging her to have bad behaviors in her mouth by finding that pacifier that she could hold. But most babies with tongue tie have a hard time holding a pacifier. Or I'll say, you know, they'll come in with a different shape, the nook, which is the nipple crusher, right? Or Mm. the man, which is the flat one. And I'll say, why did you choose this pacifier? And they'll say, that's the only one that they could keep in their mouth. Mm -hmm. Well, why is it the only one you can keep in your mouth? Because you use a chomping motion and your lips to hold it on. Mm -hmm. And with the tube shape, you actually have to use your tongue. Mm -hmm. And it's impossible for these babies who Mm -hmm. are restricted. Yeah. And then the other thing I always said about pacifiers before I knew too much about it was that the only provider that really likes pacifiers are orthodontists. (laughs) (laughs) And I learned that because my kids all had pacifiers and they all, you know, had traditional orthodontia, which I would, you know, take back if I could, but it's too late now. Um, I like to say now. Yeah. You know, better, you do better. You know, I did. And I always say, I'm not in this work and teaching what I teach because I did everything right. It's the opposite. I did probably most things wrong and I wish I could go back and change it, but I can't. But now I have a grandson to, to work it all out on. So uh, they say the grand, the grandma's love for their grandchild is more love than for your own child. So Uh, it's so different. He's, he's, uh, he's perfect. Like there's nothing wrong with him. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Okay. <laughs> I mean, I agree, I, but I see it in real time, you know, 
of course I would take things back, you know, of what I did and the way I think that I handled things and blame myself for whatever, but I see it in my day to day, right? Like, why did I say this yesterday? Why did I do this yesterday? And all we can do is say, okay, well today, today's a new day. Right. And I think that those of us who are dedicated to this field, who are networking with different types of providers who have a team, as we like to say, Mm -hmm. we learn from each other and we like to evolve our practices based on what we're learning as we're, as we're going, because this isn't, this isn't a new, you know, tongue tie isn't new, but the field of specialty of tongue tie is fairly new. So we're learning from each other. It's one of the reasons why I have this podcast so that we can all hear from different providers and listen to what's working for different providers, listening to what the different members of the team do in the field and how they feel about it and how they contribute so that we all elevate each other. That's right. I mean, even in the last seven years since Melania was born, like I said, there was not really oral motor therapy given here, which is the the center of the universe. If you ask me, New York city is the center of the universe. Um, And now look at us now we are encouraging pre phrenectomy body work, hand over fist as much as you can to take that baby out of fight or flight to, you know, do better in the phrenectomy to unwind some of those fashion fascial tension patterns so that the phrenectomy can be provided as deep as necessary. Um, and to really prepare the parents and empower the parents of what's going to happen to their child. We've gone from, Oh yeah, it's, you know, you probably should do some body work to This is necessary before you even come to see Mm -hmm. as the, you know, medical doctor. Yes. I love that you say that because, you know, I have an opinion of the procedure to release the tongue tie is rarely an emergency. And I got a lot of pushback on that because there are some people that still believe if there's a tongue tie, it should be released at birth. And I don't even know that we can tell that a tongue is tied at birth because it's, it's functional. So we have to get that baby to see if that baby, give that baby a chance to have function. Right. Before we I just mean, unless it's something. to the tip and it's anterior, obviously you can see it. Right. But, but even know. then, if the baby is eating. Right. If the mother can tolerate it, if we can get, you know, work on her milk supply, get the baby to a state where it'll be a better release because their body is more integrated, mm-hmm. it'll be, it'll be a better result. Yeah. And that's not to say that it's a terrible thing. If you did not get body work beforehand, I would just say that there's more work to be done after, but mm-hmm. sometimes, sometimes it's even helpful. Like, Oh yeah. They notice an anterior tongue tie and they clipped it right then and there, right after the delivery. And I say, well, did the, did the baby go to the breast after that? And they say, yes. And I'm like, well, great. Maybe they wouldn't have before. And that little snip, though, they didn't get the posterior portion. And that's why you're here. And that's what we're working on. That snip got your baby to the breast mm-hmm. and it got you moving. So do not in any way feel guilty. Right. That right. The ENT snipped your baby's anterior tongue tie. Okay. Yeah, no, no guilt, but, but important and um, important to know that there are some families who think they got the tongue tie quote unquote taken care of with that little snip. Right. And don't 
realize that that could still be, you know, there could be other restrictions that are still causing problems for their baby. They think like, check, that was done. Oh no, my baby, I get that all the time. No, my baby doesn't have a tongue tie. It was released already at the hospital. They did it. And I'm like, yeah, okay. I wish, <laughs> I wish you know, okay. Well, they did something. <laughs> yes, they did. And no, nobody should have any regrets or feel bad. I know it's easy to say, don't feel bad. But as I said before, you know, we're living and learning and you oh, you do the best with what you know and the care that you can find. And not everybody's as lucky as we are here in New York City with the amount of professionals that we do have to right. choose from. Right. right. Maybe too many. <laughs> that's true. But that's, another, that's a story for another day. That's definitely okay. a story for another day. And, you know, it's a, yeah. also, you know, live and learn, right? Like you have to troubleshoot through each baby and each baby is different. You may think that yes. this is a cut and dry scenario. You have worked them to the core, like gotten them so prepped. They got a release and things are not progressing in the way that you assumed that they would because you saw no other red flags. And now you're peeling back layers and going, oh, man. Right. There was a, you know, there was a food sensitivity behind there Mm -hmm. or, you know, actually there were no tears and there was no coughing or anything, but maybe they're silently aspirating. Like it's just, you live and you learn and every baby's different and you have to go with it at, you know, in the moment. Mm -hmm. And that's why protocols are, shouldn't really be right. We have to take every baby as a new slate. Right. Individualized care. And I often get the question, how do I know which body worker, which type of body worker I should bring my baby to? Well, this, and, is, this is a good question. Yes. But I honestly think this is location dependent. Thank you. That was, that's my answer always. It, because if you live yeah. in the middle of Arkansas and you only have a chiropractor who is knowledgeable at tongue tags, well, then you're going to that chiropractor, right? right? You're not going to go to the physical therapist who, you know, treats three-year-olds with sensory processing issues just because they're a pediatric physical therapist, or, you know, you're going to, you're going to seek out the person who has the training that you need. And you're not always going to get, like I said, we're spoiled here. We have everybody that you could possibly think of. Right. Apathy, chiro, um, acupuncture, craniosacral, craniofacial, physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech pathology, OMT for the older kids. We have every single niche you could possibly ask for in our pocket. And, you know, in the, in the middle of Idaho, you might have, you know, a therapist and maybe that lactation consultant who knows some oral motor skills. And that's right. And I, I get messages all the time from people from all over the country and all over the world that are having difficulty, even finding an IBCLC who understands this finding a provider for release, finding body workers who know. So my answer to that is always the person that understands about tongue tie and that you feel is can treat your baby is the right body worker. So as you were saying, if, if it's a physical therapist and they have the tongue tie training, if it's an occupational therapist, if it's a chiropractor, whoever it is that's available and that you can afford because money that's is sometimes an issue. Um, or at least they have knowledge of the, a baby's nervous system, right? You might have the IBCLC who has the knowledge of the ties and maybe some of the oral motor work, you know, within the scope, everybody has to stay within their scope, but, um, then you only have this craniosacral therapist who just works 
on people. Well, you know what? They're, they might not work in your baby's mouth and understand the relationship of the super highlights to the infra highlights, but they're going to help your baby's nervous system and sleep better and maybe take them out of the fight or flight so that you can then go back to your IBCLC and then work through some of the latching issues that were causing some of those functional issues anyway, right? You just got to go with what you got. And it's, it's a gradual in with most babies it's a gradual improvement, sometimes a little slip back and then improving going forward. It's not always a straight line up to get better immediately. Absolutely. With wound healing, right. In general, wound Mm -hmm. healing is not spoken about enough. There Mm -hmm. are ups and downs. So there's your contractile period and that is going to lead to that downhill as your scar formation starts. But I think the biggest thing that we don't talk about is that wounds actually heal for five to six months. So even mm-hmm. though it's healed on the outside and it looks pretty and I was doing well, that's not to say that if you never touch that scar again and you keep lengthening it and keeping the surrounding musculature loose, that it won't tense up later because it mm-hmm. for sure can. Mm-hmm. And we assume two weeks of stretches and you're done. Right, right. <laughs> and getting and the stretches and no other exercises is a pet peeve of mine too, but Again, I don't want to keep you all like, I don't want to keep you for hours and hours. So um, before we finish, first of all, I want you to tell us if you could, what's one piece of information, if you could only tell families one thing about tongue tie and what a physical therapist provides or anything about what you do, it doesn't even have to be that. What would it be? Okay. I know it's hard. I don't think it would be about what a physical therapist does or OT or speech. I honestly think my number one piece of advice is to keep the baby calm. It is to work on the nervous system and everything else has to fall in place after that. Because when your baby teeters on that fight or flight, it doesn't matter how many therapies you throw at them, how many times you put them to the breast. They're not learning. And so if that means you have to forego every exercise that I give you, every, every, you know, latch way that you give them and you just, that just means I put my baby in the carrier and and I held them skin to skin and I held them for every nap. That's okay because you are treating their nervous system and the other pieces will follow, but the pieces will not follow if you, if they're stuck in fight or flight. That's beautiful. Keep your baby calm. I love that. That's so simple. And that goes right into the heart, you know, my midwife's heart, right? Hold the baby, keep the baby calm. I love that. Okay. Now, before we go, tell us about your practice, your online offerings, where can people find you and what can, what can you offer us? I know you have an online program that I I give the link to all of my clients. So Uh, I totally forgot about all of that stuff. So I guess we'll do it. Um, (laughs) My Instagram is my business name, which is little movers PT. And on my Instagram, I give a lot of general tips, whether that be from just the nervous system or infant development or reflex integration or tongue ties. It can be all of the above. It's more of the, Oh, I didn't know that. And this is how it relates to your current life. Um, And then within there, I also always have the link to my course and courses, I should say. I have an infant course, zero to six months, which is just my favorite activities that every single baby should be doing, whether you have a tongue tie or not. There are 
cheat sheets for tongue-tied babies, right? That will be more specific, but it's for every single baby that exists of normal movement patterns, how we can encourage them and what, how to troubleshoot the regular issues that you may run into. And then I have a breathing course that basically just outlines plain and simple. These are the airway issues that can come up. And these are the providers that help those issues. Cause I think it can also be very confusing for professionals who come to my page as well as parents. All right. Well, my baby has laryngomalacia and strider, but they also have a tongue tie and who the heck am I going to if they're six months and who the heck am I going to if they're 18 months or who the heck am I going to if they're three years old and those can have different providers. And so this is just kind of, uh, these are all the providers. This is what they do. And these are some diagnoses that are commonly seen with airway issues and how, how they can help and how, how do they all relate to sleep actually, right? How does reflux relate to sleep? How does, you know, laryngeal malacia relate to sleep? How, how does having a low tone and a small floppy airway relate to sleep and, you know, just kind of bringing those things together. So those two programs already exist. And then I have a six to 12 month course coming out, which is way long overdue because it was taped over a year ago and still isn't out, but it's, it's on its way final touches and we'll be here soon. So, and, and those are all linked through your Instagram so yeah. they can find it through your Instagram. Excellent. And I have taken the, the baby course myself and find it amazing. So I recommend it to all my patients. So thank you. You're in my resource list, as I call it, my tongue tie resource list. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for being with us today. And uh, it was a pleasure to speak to you. I'm sure you'll be back because there were things that we could dive deeper in together. I'm sure you'll be back again, but I just want to thank you for being a guest on the Tongue Tie Experts podcast. Thank you. All right. Take care.